Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gray Matter, the podcast from Greylock, where we share stories from company builders and business leaders. I'm Heather Mack, head of editorial at Greylock. Today, we're sharing the latest episode of Fungible Times, the Web3 focused podcast produced by Greylock crypto investors Sarah Goa, Christine Kim, and Mike DeBow. Sarah and Christine spoke with Chris Giancarlo, who is one of the most influential people in financial regulation. Giancarlo is a former chairman of the CFTC, which oversees commodity futures trading. He was also a member of the U.S. Financial Stability Oversight Committee, as well as the president's working group on financial markets. Today, Giancarlo is widely known as Crypto Dad for his father-like advocacy of cryptocurrency. Crypto Dad is also the title of his new book. You can also find this episode and all other Fungible Times episodes on their show website, fungibletimes.xyz. And you can subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fungible Times. Uh, I'm Sarah Goa, and here with Christine, uh, we're really excited to welcome Chris Giancarlo, one of the most influential individuals in financial regulation today. Um, he also has the best ne- nickname of any uh, regulator or former regulator, Crypto Dad, for his father-like advocacy of cryptocurrency as former chairman of the CFTC the governing body that oversees commodities futures trading, and member of the U.S. Financial Stability Oversight Committee, as well as the president's working group on financial markets. He's currently an advisor and investor in crypto and technology businesses, author of a book, uh, Crypto Dad, The Fight for the Future of Money, and senior counsel at Wilkie, and of course, a dad himself. So uh, very excited to have you. Welcome, Chris. Great to be with you, Sarah and Christine. Thanks for having me. Yes, we're so excited for this. Uh, we haven't had former regulators or a person of your type come onto the podcast now. So we are excited to teach all our fungies, as we call our listener, um, about your world. Um, so for the first section, we like to call this Explain Like I'm Five. We're just going to do a quick section, just get into some of the more surface level things and kind of get into your background. So to kick things off, how did you become a senior regulator, become an advocate for digital currencies? Like, how did you get started in blockchain technology? We'd love to know a little bit about you, your personal career, and, you know, how this all got started. Yeah, so so how I became a senior regulator and how I became involved in crypto is almost two different stories. But just briefly, um, I spent 16 years as a practicing lawyer in New York and London, mostly with a technology-based practice. And some of those technology clients in the year 2000, led me away from law practice to uh, pitch in with them to build some of the first electronic trading platforms for a type of complex over-the-counter instrument called credit default swaps. And over the next several years, we built the world's largest wide area network trading platform for over-the-counter swaps for institutions, bank-to-bank trading. And we grew to 18 offices around the world. We raised three rounds of private equity money. And in 2005, we took that company public and eventually took it from the NASDAQ to the New York Stock Exchange. And it was a very well-performing company with over 80% market share in trading those instruments. Well, you may be guessing where this is going. In 2008, the financial crisis hit and credit default swaps were were the epicenter of that storm. Now, we were not a trading house. We operated the platforms. We operated the exchanges on which these instruments traded. Uh, But nevertheless, we understood the market and we understood the cascading uh, range of potential defaults of one U.S. financial institution to another that led to the financial crisis. And so as a result of that, I wound up giving testimony multiple times in front of Congress as it took up the Dodd-Frank legislation in the year 2009 and 2010 
when it passed in 2010, I put out a statement commending President Obama on its passage, uh, at least as far as the swaps provisions are concerned. I believe then and believe today that Dodd-Frank got it right. But over the next few years, as the Commodity Futures Trading Commission was implementing that law, I thought they got some of the implementation wrong. And I was vocal about it. Well, anyway, when a seat opened up on the commission, to my somewhat surprise, the Obama administration reached out and says, you sound like somebody who knows what he's talking about. Uh, we don't necessarily agree that we're implementing it wrong, but you support the law and we need somebody on the commission. Would you go and join? And even though I was a registered Republican, I was delighted to receive that overture from the administration. And I was pleased to be unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate. Anyway, I served during the commission, and I think I played a constructive role in helping to steer the implementation. So the answer to your first question is, how did I become a regulator? I became a regulator to focus on the swaps market. Well, during that time, Bitcoin was working its way into the national consciousness, and we at the CFTC were very focused on it. In 2015, uh, that agency, the CFTC, declared Bitcoin to be a commodity subject to its jurisdiction, and I played a role in that decision. And it really got me studying hard this new asset class. And I, had, I talk about it in my book, Crypto Dad, Fight for the Future Money, my meeting with the Winklevoss brothers um, in early 2015, which really started to open my eyes and have ultimately led to a lot of my thinking on this. Well, anyway, in 2016, uh, President Trump was elected and his first appointment was Gary Cohn to head up the National Economic Council. Gary had been the CEO of Goldman Sachs, and he was a friend and somebody I had worked with on Wall Street. Gary called me up and said, do you like what you're doing? I said, I do. He said, would you like me to recommend you become chairman to the president? I said, I would. And the next thing I know, I was notified that I was being nominated to be chairman, and I took over as acting chairman on day one in 2017. The very first thing I did at the CFTC was created Lab CFTC, and I charged that new bureau within the agency to bring in the best people and master everything they could do about cryptocurrency, blockchain, and the underlying technologies. Because I had a feeling that it was going to become much more important in the life of the CFTC. Well, sure enough, that summer, 2017, the CFTC was approached by some of the world's biggest uh, exchanges, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and Chicago Board Options Exchange, about greenlighting the creation of Bitcoin futures on the exchange. And again, I write about this in my book, it's a long story. There was a lot of pressure on us not to allow that new product to launch, but we resisted that pressure in the end of 2017, the world's first regulated market for any type of crypto, in this case, uh, uh, derivatives on crypto, futures on Bitcoin, uh, on Bitcoin, was launched on the CFTC. And within weeks of, of greenlighting that launch, I received a formal summons from the US Senate Banking Committee to appear before it and basically justify what we had done. And as you, if, if you've ever seen these hearings, you know, they've got a lot of lights and a lot of people in the room and it's a fairly pressured environment. And I had prepared this long summary of every step we had taken in advance. But you know, when the lights went on, I pushed that paper away from me and I just looked up at the dais of all these senators assembled there. And I said, senators, I, I know I'm here as the head of a federal regulatory agency, but if you allow me, I just wanna to talk to you as a dad. And I explained to them that I had kids in their 20s that had no interest in Wall Street and the stock market, but they sure had a lot of interest in crypto. And I said, you know, you've probably had some of the same conversations around your table. And I think as parents, I think we owe it to this new generation 
to get our regulatory response right and not just dismiss this as some you know fancy of youth, but there's something here that we need to to really come up with a thoughtful regulatory policy response. And then I spent the next several hours talking about what Bitcoin was and what it wasn't and, and what, what, what the definition of HODL means and why, you know, why it's important. It turned out to be a very fun hearing. And within hours, my, my 1,000 Twitter followers suddenly became, I don't know, 45,000 over the next three days. And, and, and amongst other nicknames, I got this name, Crypto Dad. That was clearly a pivotal moment for the entire ecosystem. Uh, so, uh, you know, thank you for your for your leadership here, um, and and great to hear the story. We should go back to the book, absolutely. Well, thank you. But you know, it's it's I've tried to continue in that vein. I, you know, part of I think the role I play, both at the commission and today, is explaining that that there really is something quite fundamental here. This this is not just some fancy new asset class that's competing with other asset classes for investment. This is truly a new architecture of finance. This is the internet now doing to banking and finance and money what it's already done in our lifetimes to online commerce, to retail shopping, to transportation, to entertainment, and to think that it won't have a similar impact on finance that it's had in those other areas is just naive. And, and so because I was a regulator, because I, I'm considered to have been a successful regulator, I think part of my job today in the marketplace is helping explain these changes to the legacy system and the legacy regulatory system, which is as impervious to change in many ways as a lot of legacy industries. And yet change they must because technology is unstoppable. This change in the architecture of finance is going to happen. And regulators and policymakers need to keep pace with that change. I love that you actually had those comments because, you know, that really kind of lays the case for why crypto and digital currency is just important for our economy, our society, for our nation, for the world. Um, and, you know, assuming that most people that are listening to this podcast are interested in Web3 and interested in crypto and have sort of already red pilled, if you will, if you haven't, hopefully Sarah and I have been red pilling you with these episodes. You know, we assume that a lot of our listeners are already on board with crypto, but are not super familiar with regulation. And so from your perspective, what would you tell our listeners or the average consumer? You know, what is the importance of regulation, specifically crypto regulation? And, you know, maybe you can give kind of an update or a background of just what's the state of the union right now when it comes to crypto and policy and regulation? Okay, so so you're very sophisticated crypto listeners have heard me say to my generation and the legacy system that to think that crypto won't change everything is naive, right? Well, let me now turn that around and say to the crypto generation to think that this space won't be regulated, that it won't become within the political control as every other activity has is also naive. What we've got to do is meet in the middle. We've got to find the right balance between what's the right scope of regulation for this emerging new industry so that it can thrive. You know, regulation can, if, it, if it's poorly designed, can be detrimental. But if it's, if it's properly designed, it can actually be conducive. You know, U.S. derivative markets, for example, are the world's largest and most successful. And yet they've been regulated for over 100 years. And so you can get regulation right. And, and what we need to do is not oppose it, but actually lean in and get it right. Because what is regulation at the end of the day? It's just another 
algorithm, right? It's just another set of protocols. And if we get, just as we know in crypto, if we get the protocols right, it can be tremendously successful. And similarly in regulation, we get the protocols right, we can be very successful. And, and often to get it right, we need to go back to basic principles of what is appropriate disclosure, who should be responsible for, for false disclosure, you know, what are appropriate consumer protections while not taking risk out of a marketplace? Because without risk, you can't have economic activity. So how do we find the right balance there? So what I would say is it can be done. We all need to lean in. You know, uh, legacy folks need to lean in. New entrants need to lean in. And we need to use our democratic system to get this right. And I would say there's a lot of leadership coming out of the space. People like Sam Bankman-Fried and others are really working hard to say, we're not opposed to regulation, but we've got to get the, the details matter. We've got to get it right. And I think that's a really good development. Yeah, I think embracing regulation and, you know, not trying to say we're going to operate outside the, you know, the confines of regulation and acknowledging that these two sides need to meet is going to be incredibly important. And I think, you know, we have a lot to lose if we don't get this right. And so it's there's a lot at stake. Um, and so in our next section, we'll definitely get into what are some of the biggest risks and some of the biggest policies that you you are focused on. But, you know, I want to um, focus on and I want to ask about some of the initiatives that you've been working on lately. Can you explain, you know, the notion of a central bank digital currency or what we might call a CBDC? What are the pros and cons around it? Is it meant to erase or evade the systems that we have today? Um, you know, just maybe I'll pause there and you can give some color sure. on, you know, your stance yeah. with that. So, so very simply, central bank digital currency is basically a digital bearer instrument. Uh, it would still be blockchain based, although most like most. So let me back up for a second. First of all, let's start with the fact that virtually every major central bank in the world, over 90 of them, are at work on central bank digital currency. So there is something here, right? Uh, I, I, what, the way I think about it is the private sector has been experimenting with digital money for a dozen years. The legacy system that first ignored it and ridiculed it has now woken up and realized it's not going away and they're a decade behind. And so they're either building furiously or, or likely buying furiously. Well, now the third community, that is regulators, central bankers, are waking up, realizing they're a dozen years behind, and they're now looking at central bank digital currency. Uh, I think, well, cer certainly China has been way out in front of this and has not only launched a central bank digital currency, there's already over 100 million Chinese using that central bank digital currency. They have taken a leadership role in developing a lot of the protocols around sovereign digital money. And, and that's part of the reason why I've long advocated that the United States needs to stop following and start leading. And why is that? Because once you get beyond the technology, once you get beyond the network effect of, that currencies have, ultimately currencies are expressions of the value of a people. And the Chinese digital yuan known as the ECNY is being developed, it's going to have a lot of technological capacity, but it's also going to reflect certain values of a, of a closed society, values of surveillance and censorship. We need to, I believe, in our free society, develop the anecdote to that, a, 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 an alternative to that, that reflects the value of a free society, the values of 
of transparency of of, of transparency of use of of, of its uh, capabilities, but also uh, uh, economic privacy and 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 freedom from censorship, and so. Ultimately, the, the digital future of money, I think, is a battle of values. And I think now is the time for, the, for free societies like the United States to experiment with central bank digital currency that reflects that, those values. Now, some, some uh, developers, some central banks see central bank digital currency in exclusion to non-sovereign forms of money. I personally don't. The, the, while the Digital Dollar Project, which I phoned, takes no view on that, I personally feel that the best protection of people's individual liberty and financial freedom is that they have choice of an instrument to use, whether that be both sovereign and non-sovereign. That's something I write about in my book. We'll have to see that develops, but uh, it's very important, I believe, for a free society to work with groups like ours at the Digital Dollar Project to start experimenting with a central bank digital currency. So if and when, and I think it's more likely when than if, this Federal Reserve would take up development of a central bank digital currency here in the United States. It would be it would have the benefit of work done by the private sector, experimenting with not only its use cases and wholesale use and a retail use, but also in the value system that a free people must demand in money. Yep, that's great. And if you are listening to this podcast and you want to hear more about this work, definitely look up the Digital Dollar Project. That's the name of the organization that Chris is working with. Um, and I'm glad that you mentioned your book as well. So the last question for this topic is, you know, you wrote the book, you published it last, late last year. It's called Crypto Dad, The Fight for Future Money. Um, why write it? What can readers expect to see in there? Um, and yeah, maybe kind of cover what's, what's, what's in the book. Well, so, so a couple of things. One is I wanted to put down on paper the history of Bitcoin futures because both it's an interesting story and, and, and we're a storytelling people and we like to hear stories, but also because it kind of was a close run thing. There, there was a lot of pressure to, to block uh, uh, Bitcoin futures. And had we done so, we wouldn't have the institutional interest that have brought a maturity to this asset class that we have. And I think it would have hindered development of the entire crypto space, which, which has so much promise for greater financial inclusion and greater direct control of people's things of value and the way they transfer it. So, so that, A, I wanted to tell that story, but I also wanted to look ahead to what the greater institutionalization of this asset class means going forward. You know, we, we all hold out the promise that Web 3.0 would solve the problems of Web 2.0, of big tech being able to basically take our take our data, use commercialize it, use it, but also censor it in some cases. My what I talk about in the book is the promise of digital money is to give each of us much greater control over the things of value that we have, how we own them, who we share them with, how we exchange them. But I also worry, and I talk about this in my book, that the promise of Web 3.0 could be could be thwarted by either big tech or big government surveilling our use of our financial activity and censoring that use in the same way that big tech has done that with information. And so I, I wrote the book ultimately to put a free society on guard that we need to step up right now. The future of money is coming and there's a question of what it's gonna look like. China has laid down one marker, one benchmark for it, and that's money as a surveillance tool. That is money as a means of control. 
what will the free societies of the world do? Will they just come up with something that's not as censorable, not as surveillable? You know, they could say, well, by comparison to the other one, it's not as bad. I think that's a disaster. The right model has got to be one that actually affirmatively and assertively says your privacy is private if you use a, a type of liberty coin that I'm advocating for. So the fight for the future of money is at hand right now. And the jury's out what that's going to look like. And we all need to be in the game. And, and I would say that the private sector has laid down some pretty good markers for government to look at as it goes forwards and considers uh, a central bank digital currency. That's a really good segue into um, our next section, Chris, and it's a it sort of describes some of the I think larger mission that you're on. Um, so let's go to um, doing our own research, where we dive one level deeper for uh, for the um, builders and, and crypto enthusiasts in our in our audience. Um, you know, one one issue that you just described is that there's a uh, a huge policy difference. Uh, between different geos right now. And I think there's a general perception among global crypto entrepreneurs that, um, that you know, and there's many dimensions to this problem, but that the U.S. has a more restrictive and less clear regulatory environment for private organizations in crypto than other geos. If we put the um, sort of surveillance uh, capabilities around currencies that are centrally issued uh, aside, um, why should the U.S. care about our sort of comparative regulatory stance and, and what are the threats and benefits from a national perspective? Okay, well, let's start with the real basics and then work to the specifics. The reason why the U.S. should care, I think the reason why the U.S. has a national interest in leadership is because the U.S. has derived so much benefit from its leadership in the old legacy financial system that it ought to know how important it is to lead, right? And this is an entirely new architecture, right? This is not proprietary rails that banks and other exchanges operate to determine who owns what, who's transferred what to whom. But this is a new architect that draws on the internet and draws on the ability to um, not be wedded to double entry bookkeeping, but to use a blockchain distributed ledger basis for determining immutably who owns what and whom and gives much greater control to people. It's an entirely new re relationship between people and their things of value and things of money. It's an entirely new architecture. And if the U.S. just sits it out and says, it doesn't matter, it's, it's the same way the U.S. unfortunately sat out 5G technology. You know, even more broadly, you know, the, the, the development of um, the semiconductor allowed us to take the computing power of large mainstream computers and put it into personal computers and distribute them all over the world. But it was the development of networking language, HTML and others, that allowed those computers to talk to each other that brought us that first Internet of information. Computers talking to each other, and it freed information from proprietary rails. The reason you can make a phone call any in the world on FaceTime at no cost at all is because you're outside of the phone company's rails and you're using, you're drawing on that, that network of computers. So it freed us up and created a new relationship with information. The second internet wave was basically, let's come up with protocols to allow devices to talk to each other. Well, that protocol is 5G technology, and the United States somehow sat out the development of that is not a player. This third wave of the internet is going to allow us to take things of value and draw upon the computing power of that World Wide Web to connect things of value and allow people to direct it. 
And the and the and when we're talking about different blockchains, what we're effectively talking about is competition to see which one of those blockchains are going to perform that fun that networking function. And they all have different features. You know, some are greater as stores of value, some are greater as payment systems, some are greater as as program, you know, good for use in smart contracts. That's a healthy commercial competition for what's going to emerge. But if the US sits it out or worse, blocks it by heavy-handed regulation, all we're going to assure ourselves is that other economies are going to lead in the development about that new architecture of value and reap the benefits of it. So I really believe that you know we do have uh, a bit of a, of a crazy quilt of US regulators in the United States. I, often that's actually not been a bad thing. I think that competing regulators sometimes is both good for protecting our liberty but also spurring each other to do better and better. And I think at the CFTC, we often challenge our sister agency at the SEC to up its game, right? We created Lab CFTC, then they created FinHub. You know, it, it often works that way. And if you combine them, I'm not sure you'd get a better result. But it is a difficult um, uh, landscape to navigate for neophytes in this industry and, and navigate yet we must. And yet having said that, I think the time has come for Congress. It, it's Congress as the as the as the as the uh, tribune of the people to really declare a national interest in leadership in this new architecture. You know, Congress has done it before. In the 1960s, Congress decided, you know, de declared that it was their national interest to to land a person on the moon. It was Congress that actually created the CFTC because it knew we needed to lead. In, in the development of financial futures, which allowed the world to go off the gold standard. And it's Congress in the 1990s that said the United States has a, has a national interest in leading in the first wave of the internet with a do no harm approach. And I think once again, the time has come for Congress to stand up and say, there is a national need for leadership in this new technology. And, and, and remember, agencies like the CFTC and the SEC they're not administration agencies. They're independent agencies with an equal reporting line to Congress, as well as to the White House. Congress has a role to play to make the agencies understand that they've got to, um, they've got to further innovation. Of course, there's an appropriate role for regulation, law enforcement, stable and orderly markets, full disclosure. But at the end of the day, we have to seize this moment and be a leader in this innovation, consistent with free society values, of privacy, freedom from censorship, rule of law, uh, free enterprise, et cetera. Can you actually parse that out? So I, I realize that this may sound like a more uh, explain to me like I'm five question, but many, many entrepreneurs coming from a technology um, engineering product background, you know, have a low level of understanding of the regulatory environment, right? So, you know, how should people understand the difference between um, the responsibilities of the CFTC and the SEC and, uh, you know, other other players that they should be aware of? So the way to think about it is, you know, at the end of the day, re regulation is a series of protocols, right? And, 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 it's, and it's a series of protocols that was written for a different world. It, it, most of our regulatory bodies and agencies in the United States came out of the the twenty uh, the 1929 stock market crash, the SEC was created in the early 1930s. The CFTC was created first as a department of Ag uh, an agency of the Department of Agriculture in the 1930s. The securities laws were passed in the 1930s. They were a series of protocols that applied to a very different world, a world of really 
face-to-face relationships, of, of physical trading floors, of, of, of printed documents and printed disclosure statements. And in many ways, the, the regulatory protocols were written for that. Now, just brief overview of the landscape. In, in, in the United States, we have market regulators and we have what we call prudential regulators, which are basically bank and insurance company regulators. There are two market regulators, that's the CFTC, and then there's the SEC. And real simply, the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, oversees markets for capital formation, capital transfer, capital formation. It can be a stock, it can be a bond, but basically somebody with capital is looking for an opportunity to put that capital to work. Somebody with an opportunity is looking for that capital. And they meet in the middle on our U.S. stock exchanges. So capital formation is what the SEC does. That's not what the CFTC does. The CFTC is on the job of risk pricing and risk formation, risk transfer. So that is an enterprise with a risk of, say, a moving commodity price. Gasoline prices go up um, or the price of commodities falling. A farm enterprise is worried about um, its fertilizer costs is one thing, but it's if the crops fall below a certain point in the fall when they sell it at market, that, that may be the difference between uh, profit and loss. Uh, but energy companies have, have commodity pr- uh, pricing risk. Um, big companies have interest rate uh, movement risks or have foreign exchange movement risk. They may, they may sell overseas and have the risk of moving exchange rates. So the, the risk transfer is what the CFTC does. So those are oversee markets. And then there are not one, not two, but three bank regulators in Washington. There's the Federal Reserve, there's the Office of the Controller of the Currency, and there's the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, the FDIC, and they all oversee the banking sector. So it, it is a complex landscape, but what I would say is we have the world's largest economy. We have the world's most sophisticated and complex economy. And in many cases, historically, the multiplicity of agencies has roughly served us well. However, here comes along crypto. It's an entirely new technology, right? And it goes into this regulatory landscape that was built for a different world. And suddenly the protocols don't match the new technology. Now, my, my, my former colleague, uh, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler, who was once the chairman of the CFTC and I have a long history of working with, says, well, look, same, occup- same activity, same regulation. Well, if that's true, then why did we not use railroad transportation regulation to regulate the airlines, right? It's transportation, but it's entirely different technology. And so we have different regulatory standards for airlines than we do for railroads. And I would say, so I'm not sure we need a new agency, but I do think we need a new body of regulatory law. I think, you know, the last thing we probably need is a new regulator in Washington. And, but we could assign the existing regulatory space with the, right, with the right new protocols, with some additional funding, and give them the opportunity to oversee this new market. And if, in fact, it doesn't work out, then we can consider a new agency. But I wouldn't rush to create a new agency. But we do need Congress to step in and write new protocols. Now, the first step, though, has got to be, I believe, for Congress to say there is a national imperative to get this and get this right. That's step number one. I think that that will solve a lot of issues 
if Congress says the United States needs to lead, not follow. F flowing from that should be then, I think, a set of, 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 uh, of regulations, protocols, if you will, that are, that are appropriately designed for this new asset class. Again, when I was on Wall Street, you know, we traded many different products on, on our trading floors at GFI Group, my, my former firm. And yet uh, sometimes vendors would come in and say, well, I've got some new uh, compliance software that works great in credit default swaps. It'll work in equity swaps. And it never worked that way. You know, software has to be written for the asset class, not adapted from some other asset class. And I think the same thing applies to regulation. We need bespoke, we need customized regulation written for crypto, and it's for Congress to do so. One thing I'd love for entrepreneurs listening to hear is like perhaps like the success case of like getting it right from a regulation perspective. And I don't know if oh, you well, could speak to um, the I'll impact. Of, uh, that'd be wonderful. Because one thing that even Christine and I have heard is we we spent a good amount of time talking to, um, for example, large market participants um, from the existing traditional finance system that are actually coming into crypto now because they have more regulatory visibility. And I, I think that just speaks to um, you know benefits the ecosystem could actually see. So I'll give you a great one. So um, in the 19, up until the 1970s, the world's really only marketplaces for hedging risk were to hedge the risk of things that came out of the ground. Uh, Aristotle talks about in ancient Greek, there actually you could buy options on olive production to hedge your risk of, of olive oil and other important, but all throughout history, it's, it's hedging markets for hedging risk of of crop prices or energy prices, the notion of hedging financial risk did not exist until the 1970s when a couple of brilliant people out of Chicago, Dr. Richard Sandor, Leo Malamud at the CME, came up with the notion of financial futures. And it was such a brilliant idea, the notion that you could hedge the risk of, of moving international interest rates or moving currency rates that, believe it or not, the Washington political class realized this is so important. It'll allow us to go off the gold standard and the world to move away from a gold as a standard of money and use the, and the dollar could truly become the benchmark pricing instrument for virtually everything in this world. They were so concerned that if that product went under SEC jurisdiction, it would be strangled at birth. It would never take off. And so the CFTC was taken out as a department of the Department of Agriculture and created as a standalone agency with a mandate for product innovation and oversight over financial futures. That product has worked brilliantly. It's allowed the dollar to be the world's reserve currency, and it's allowed, allowed all the world's major prices for anything that is of value, of significant value, are priced in dollars because the risk of dollars can be hedged in very successful liquid markets overseen by the world's premier risk regulator, the CFTC. It's worked brilliantly. It's, it's very much worked in the national interest, but I think it's worked in the global interest. I think that the period we've just been through 30 years of globalization is not a coincidence of the dollar's rise as a reserve currency, but a consequence of it. And more people have moved out of poverty in the last three years around the world as a result of that. So I actually think the dollar's dominance has been a net good for the world. It's not without its flaws. It's not without, not, it's worthy of criticism in a number of areas, but I think it's been a net good. And I think the CFTC's oversight of those markets 
has a big role to play. And so I think, you know, this is a great instance of where Congress recognized that the right type of regulation could lead to the explosion in, in market activity, explosion of economic activity. And I think that same here is true. The right type of regulation for crypto could be a net positive for crypto if we get it right. It's great, great historical context there. Um, you know, one thing, uh, like clearly there are risks around digital currency as well, crime and fraud, um, uh, money laundering, tax evasion, system stability, privacy, uh, you know, the values that come with these different um, instruments. Uh, what, you know, what concerns do you think the um, the general public or even Congress are sort of over-focused on or under-focused on? So you'd be shocked to know that those same issues you mentioned, money laundering, uh, fraud manipulation, others are all present in the dollar every day, but we don't scrap the dollar as a result of it. We, we double down on our efforts at, at, at uh, policing those activities, right? And so for those people that criticize crypto on, on the fact that there, there's some fraud manipulation and money laundering, and I, I don't, I'm not naive about it at all. I prosecute a lot of it at the CFTC. Um, the answer is that doesn't undermine the asset class. What it means is that we need the right scope of regulation to police that activity. So I don't think it undermines the, the value. And I'll, I'll say another thing. Another criticism of Bitcoin is it's volatile. And so somehow that undermines its value. Well, it's not volatile as a design flaw. It's, design, it's volatile as a design feature. Why is that? Because it has a fixed supply. Any asset, any commodity that has a fixed supply if demand goes up or down, only one thing can happen, and that's price movement. It's not a design flaw; it's a it's a design feature, and and you know smart investors that do their research will understand that and take that into account. But it certainly doesn't undermine the value proposition, nor does fraud manipulation. And I'll give you one other historical point: when the internet, when we first started surfing the web back in the 1990s, the criticism of the internet was it was only good for pornography. Well, we've discovered that it's fabulous for transportation, it's fabulous for information gathering, it's fabulous, and perhaps for some people, it's still good for pornography. In other words, that use case hasn't undermined its value proposition. It's a tool. It, it's, it's, it's morally neutral. Crypto is a tool. It's morally neutral. What we need to do is put the right framework around it and then, and then enhance its value proposition. Yes, and I, I think the... Um... Uh, I think the realization uh, or the conclusion that I, I come to, uh, given the criticisms around uh, volatility of different crypto assets is, well, we're either missing risk transfer or instruments that we need to have. Not that, you know, Bitcoin itself is useless. Exactly right. And look, take, take some commodities we use every day, like oil. Two years ago, it was trading below zero. Now it's trading over $100. That's a lot of volatility for a commodity that you can adjust supply or demand. Bitcoin, you cannot change supply. So last um, substantive question for you. Uh, there's a lot that's been going on recently that matters uh, for crypto regulation, the war in Ukraine, and you know discussions around uh, um, censorship uh, and control of funds in, in a case like that, and also the use of the U.S. dollar as a weapon in sanctions. Um, the SEC's continued charges of organizations, Biden's executive order, which you wrote about, uh, Treasury Secretary, Secretary Yellen's speech. Um, I'm sure a huge number of big events I'm missing, but help our listeners sort of parse where we are, or, or do you have any predictions for um, the, the next year? 
you're absolutely right. There's so much going on right now, and and different different of those instances reflect different trends. A couple. Of, let's take the war in, in Ukraine. We are seeing the maximum amount of weaponization of the dollar and global payments than we've ever seen in history of any currency. Um, uh, I'm not uh, uh, critical of that because the alternative to economic sanctions is, is, as a matter of statecraft, is warfare. And I, I'm not necessarily sure the United States population would prefer to see troops in combat as opposed to the weaponization of the dollar. Having said that, however, there will be ramifications for this degree of, of weaponization of the dollar. There are countries around the world that are not uh, ha are not taking sides in this conflict, but are observing that and saying, well, that we could be subject to those same types of sanctions in the future, maybe because of military action we take or other action we take. We may fall afoul of Western um, rules and regs or, or, or sensitivities around ESG or other things and suddenly be subject to this type of sanctions. So I think, um, sadly, uh, this weaponization of the dollar will lead to a lot of interest in central bank digital currencies, perhaps on the Chinese model or other models around the world as a way of sanctions avoidance in the future. I think it will accelerate work on central bank digital currency around the world. Um, here in the United States, um, I think a number of the statements that you've cited here, uh, uh, Senator Yellen's statement, the president's executive order, signal that after, uh, what are we now, 2022, after 14 years of ignoring a crypto, the official federal government is now really getting into gear. And I think their first instinct is to bring it within political control. And that's why you see every major agency stepping up. Now, some of that, they're expressing that political control by uh, shutting, trying to shut things down or slow things down, uh, which I think is unfortunate. It's why I said several times, uh, I think Congress needs to step in and declare a national imperative. Um, I've been critical of the president's working group, a body I served on, a statement it put out last fall, which I said was quite reactionary and, and resistant to this innovation. I think some of the tone has been tempered. And I think uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen's recent speech certainly expressed far more uh, optimism for the potential of this uh, new revolution. But I still think there's far too much, um, perhaps, uh, I don't want to say cautiousness, because cautiousness is well-placed, but I think there's too much, still too much skepticism. And I think there are some segments of the legacy financial system that um, uh, are voicing skepticism or resistance, it may be because they really do want to be resistant or they want to buy time to catch up to this innovation. But um, uh, look, you can't stop technology. Um, and, and I do think that the legacy financial systems uh, response to this innovation is unfortunately more resistant than we saw in the first wave of the internet where the Clinton White House and the New Greenwich Congress actually came together to further the first wave of the internet. And that's what I would prefer to see more uh, this time around. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all of that, Chris. We've been completely schooled on some of the history of financial regulation and also a much more, uh, I don't spend that much time with regulators, but it is rare to be inspired by speaking to a uh, you know builder and former regulator. Um, 
And I, I would say, I, I believe you characterized it as sort of the, the next space race. And, you know, I, I am hopeful that we'll see um, more political bodies and agencies recognize that for what it is. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it to Christine to, to wrap up here. Yeah. And I, I just want to thank you again. This has been an amazing conversation. One of my favorite podcasts. I think the importance of these issues and understanding, you know, what is at stake and what the work is to do and comparing it to former waves of the internet or the space race, or just thinking about these huge leaps that we can make um, in human innovation or in our lifetime, it's just kind of really puts things into a massive perspective. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there. For our last, very last section, just a quick wrap up. Um, This is the quite easy part. So this is a new question that we're gonna ask. We are incorporating this from one of our former episodes with Doe at Terra, the audience loved his apartment tour. So you look like actually you're at a beautiful office. We love to break the fourth wall, give our watchers, at least those on YouTube, and plug if you're listening to this podcast, watch on YouTube. Um, give us a tour of your office and maybe point out a couple of fun things that you have there. Okay, so um, I, my, my wife and I live in a 1897 uh, Queen Anne Victorian house in Northern New Jersey that we bought 30 years ago when we started our family and have been working on room by room ever since. So I'm actually in the third floor of the house uh, where it's this great old wood paneled library. So I'm going to, I, I, and I'm also a musician and actually I put my laptop on a music stand uh, in order to do a podcast like this. So I'm gonna actually swivel it and give you a little tour around um, the house. Um, so over in the corner there, you can see a cabinet with a electric guitar in it. And see, I don't know how this is gonna work. Anyway, those are the stairs that come up. Let me come around uh, this way. And let's see, the light's not good, but this is our third floor guest room here. And if you've ever seen these Queen Anne Victorians, they have turrets. So the ceiling in that goes all the way up. And in this library here, the ceiling goes all the way up as well. And so there, so that's, that's my library. That's uh, the great Italian poet Dante there. And that guitar is, was signed by my former staff at the CFTC on my departure from the agency. So it's, it's a great prized possession. And I don't know if you can see here on the wall is a sword. Um, when I left the CFTC, I was honored in a ceremony in London with the freedom of the city, which is sort of like the key to the city in the United States. And one of the privileges for having the freedom of the city of London, which goes back to the 13th century, is the freedom to carry a sword around London. And so uh, an English friend of mine actually had that sword made at a sword factory in the UK and gave it to me as a gift. So that's a that's a prized possession there. So Chris, we are taking a walk around London at some point with this sword. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And nobody can arrest me. So the other the other privilege you get is that if you are committed of a felony and, and, and are hung at the gallows, you get to wear a silk ribbon around the rope. So that's one privilege I hope never to use. So it's a, it's a fun little British tradition. These unique privileges you have, I love that. One might look at your room and question if you read books. Um, <laughs> that's what, that's one, maybe one of the tallest libraries I've seen with that ceiling, that's awesome. Which for the very, very last question to kind of full send off this podcast, is there a favorite book? Maybe it's a movie or a song, you're um, a musician, any piece of media that's made an impression on you recently or you would count as your favorite? So, uh, you know, as, as I said, I'm a musician. I'm actually performing uh, with the Crypto Kings Band, 
uh, Saturday, April 30th at the 76 house in Tapan, New York. So if anybody's around, please drop in and I'll be, uh, it's a great band. Everybody sings, everybody performs, but I'll be doing a great uh, tune in that one, a Neil Young song called Long May You Run. And so I've been, every night after I finish my work, I've been in my little studio downstairs rehearsing. So I'll be doing another other numbers, but that's such a great song. It's got such a great message. And so any, anybody's around April 30th, um, the Crypto Kings Band, 76 House, Tapan, New York. Come on down. Check us out. With your chrome heart shining in the sun, long may you run. Oh, you got it. There you go. That's it. That's amazing. We're going to have to play one of your songs as the outro for the intro or outro for this episode. Um, I did not know you're a musician or in a band, and you're going to be playing live. What a treat. Thank you again. Thank you Thanks so much. much, Chris. Great being with you. All right. Bye, guys. It's 5.50-something, and it feels empty inside The sun is going down, the sky